And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Metrospective presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70 celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. I'm Ted Berg. The Athletics Mets beat writer Tim Britton remains on vacation through this very tumultuous time in the 2021 Mets season. So joining us in his stead is the longtime Mets beat writer for MLB.com, Anthony DeComo. Tony, how's it going? Good, Ted. I like that you said remains on vacation for Tim. I'm not sure he's ever going to come back. Was that, so does that sound a little pass? Does that sound a little passive aggressive? A little, a little passive aggressive. Well, he is, my understanding, uh, relaxing somewhere in the Greek Isles, and the rest of us are are sitting here watching, um, you know, whatever this is that the Mets have been doing over the past uh, five months. So uh, that's that's neither here nor there. I'm sure Tim's having a great time, but I'm happy to pitch it. I, you know, I would still say, like, uh, I mean. So as Tim knows, and I, and I detailed on the show, which I'm sure you were listening to, uh, my own honeymoon happened to coincide with the shirtless Tony Bernazard turn into Omar Minaya accusing Adam Rubin of lobbying for a job. Like that whole saga happened while I was on my honeymoon. I've got Tim beat here in terms of things we missed, right? I would say so. If you want to have a competition, I mean, I took a vacation earlier this year and it was during that 10 game road trip back in May when literally every player on the Mets got hurt. So uh, I think the moral of the story here is that you just can't ever leave because something always happens. <laughs> right, so that it is it is the rule of the Mets that it is it is coming if it you know, just just wait and uh, that moment will arrive. But meanwhile, the you know the Mets had been playing quite a bit better since Javi Baez's moment with the thumbs down and the the booing and uh, all the ensuing controversy there until uh, yesterday, Sunday. As we, or I'm sorry, I have lost track of the day. Uh, Monday, which was Labor Day, the Mets had a lead all game. Edwin Diaz blows it in, in the ninth, uh, and and all of a sudden, as you wrote. Uh, they basically have no margin for error moving forward. Pretty much, yeah. And it's funny, after after the series, uh, Wayne Randazzo, who does the radio for the Mets, he reminded me of something I had said to him on the field on Friday night, which is, wouldn't it be the most Mets thing ever if they actually win this series, but they win three of the first four and then lose the fifth one in some awful way, and it will feel like a series loss regardless. And it did feel like a series <laughs> loss. Uh, I nailed that prediction, and despite the fact that they won three of five from the Nationals, you went into that thinking they kind of need to win four or more of these games. Uh, Mm -hmm. The Mets have been playing better lately. There's no doubt about it. There's no taking that away from them. Pretty much all facets of their game have been better. But it's hard to determine how real it is because they're playing. They've done it against two of the worst teams in Major League Baseball, the Nationals and the Marlins, neither of whom, especially the Nationals, are not trying particularly hard at this juncture 
of the season. So uh, they put themselves in this situation coming into 14 in a row against those two teams where just winning those games and going like nine and five or something was not going to be enough. They needed to destroy those teams. They needed to go something like 12 and two over that stretch, which they're not going to do. And yeah, it has kind of gotten rid of that margin for error because the team that they're chasing, the Braves, while they're not playing great either right now, their schedule is much, much easier than the Mets the rest of the way. They've still got games against the Rockies, the D-backs, they've got the Nationals and the Marlins themselves, whereas the Mets are about to face a long run of postseason contenders here. Yankees, Cardinals, Phillies, Red Sox, Brewers. Uh, There's no break in that. So the Mets are not going to find it as easy to reel off five, six, seven in a row against those teams as they did against the Nationals and Marlins. And once they get into that, we will see how real this is. But I think that's what made Monday so disappointing. Not that it wouldn't have been otherwise. A blown save from Edwin Diaz, a game they were winning most of the way, a game they easily could have, should have tacked on, one going away. Disappointing in its own right, but taking it within that context of the opportunity that they had to build a little bit of momentum here when they had the chance to do it. Uh, it's tough to view that, again, taking three out of five, but it's tough to view it as anything other than kind of a, whatever the opposite of a moral victory is. Yeah, I mean, I think, and you touched on a couple of aspects of it that that I think make the remainder of the season, and it was a long shot a week ago. It was a long shot once they started winning it. You know, it has been a long shot since they went into the tank at the beginning of August. But uh, the fact that, Diaz has now blown two straight saves after, you know, he had the the great start and then the spider tack thing went away and and all of a sudden his spin rate's down. He's struggling a little more. Then it seemed like he was sort of pulling it all together. So it's very frustrating to see him blow two straight. Uh, is And you, you kind of feel like, you know, this bullpen has been so good all season or at least so far beyond expectations all season. And... Uh, what a tough time for the bullpen to start sort of regressing a little bit here when that was really the one unit they could count on for the whole year. Now it seems like just about everything else uh, is clicking. Uh, it would be a rough time for the bullpen to fall apart. Yeah, absolutely. And it is a, a unit that has been relied on heavily and they have held up really well over that stress uh, despite heavy usage for a lot of these guys. You know, with Diaz in particular, we're three years into this now, and I think we've reached the point where this guy has something close to around an 80% save conversion attempt, or save conversion rate, excuse me. And I think we all look at him, and we see what he did in Seattle back in the day. Mm -hmm. Uh, We see the stuff. We see how dominant he can be when he's on and how impossible it is for people to hit him. But then he does have this frequency of games where he's, hanging pitches where he's catching too much strike zone and he is hittable when that happens. And my point in all of this in saying is I think for three years now, all of us who watch the Mets regularly have been waiting for this guy to just turn back into what he was in Seattle, mm-hmm. to be absolutely dominant, to go on this run where he's ripping off save after save after save. And I think you have to take a step back at some point and say, maybe this is just who he is. Maybe this is just a guy who is extremely talented extremely dominant 80% of the time, but then the other 20% of the time he is going to blow those saves. And it's just something that you have to live with it. Not that 80% save rate is horrible. You know, you're still doing the job four times out of five, but it is not in that category of what you would call an elite closer. So maybe that's all it is. 
maybe he's just a very good but not elite closer, and the Mets are going to have to live with that. And and I think it's just the context of when you lose games, especially big games, that you're winning with, with this guy who's supposed to be all that. And you come in, it can be a little bit more heart-wrenching, certainly, than a normal loss, given the circumstances. So it's probably more frustrating to watch than if the Mets had just lost 9-3 to to the Nationals on Monday. Um, But, you know, afterward, Luis Rojas, again, committed to Edwin Diaz. And I'm not sure I blame him, because what are you going to do at this point? You're going to go and you're going to name Trevor May, you're going to name Seth Lugo, you're going to name whoever else the closer. I I don't know how much that even benefits the Mets at this point, Uh, they were always going to be relying on Diaz being good if they wanted to get to the, where, the, where they want to go. Well, and it seems like him in particular, and, and it's always such a, a tough thing to read, but you know we have seen so many pitchers who seem to struggle in non-save situations, and it seems like Diaz, when he is on, it's almost always in a tight game and almost always in a, in a save situation. And you wonder, oh, if we want to, you know, if we're going to make a change here and bump him to the eighth inning, to the seventh inning, does that render him just completely useless then? Yeah, I, I, I personally, I've gotten fights. I've gotten into fights with, on Twitter with people about this. I don't necessarily buy into the save versus non-save. Situation. You've gotten in fights on Twitter? <laughs> you know, I, I, I try to do it under cover of darkness, but... <laughs> It is, you know, you look at this, the sample sizes, they're so small. You look at the year to year splits and really they kind of fluctuate back and forth. The bulk of the work. Yes, he has been better in safe situations. I think a lot of closers mm-hmm. can say the same thing, uh, but it's not as if he's been over the years, a total zero in non-safe situations. I think he's had a couple of bad outings that have really inflated those numbers. And then anecdotally, once that theme is set, people just take it and run with it and believe it no matter what the truth really is. So the point is, I don't think if you move Edwin Diaz to the seventh inning, he's suddenly just going to be a complete zero. I think he'll be totally fine. I think, frankly, he'll be the same type of pitcher that he is in the ninth. My point is more, I don't know if there's someone you can plug into the closer role that you can say, well, this guy is demonstrably better. This guy, instead of saving 80% of his chances, he's going to save 90% and we're just going to get on a roll. You know, Diaz, on the whole, has been decent. He hasn't been great. He hasn't been terrible. Um, but frankly, if there's someone that you think is is better in the bullpen, again, whether that's May, whether that's Lugo, obviously Aaron Loop has been great, but he's a little more of a, a specialist. The point is, I'd rather save those guys for the higher leverage situations, whether that's the seventh, the eighth, and, and if it has to be the ninth every once in a while, then sure, and, and keep Diaz in maybe this more of a fixed role where you know, you're not necessarily uh, making a move having someone else be the full-time closer, then not having them available earlier. And oh, by the way, if something goes wrong with them in the ninth, then you're back to square one and you say, what, what have we done? Yeah, I think that's spot on. And, and you know, you pointed to the no obvious replacement. It's, it's sort of the story with this bullpen is it's a bunch of guys who have been good and outside of loop, no one has been totally dominant. And so, yeah, like it, it feels more interchangeable. Like Seth Lugo, we've seen in the past, can be uh, a, a very dominant force in the late innings. He hasn't really been that way this year. Uh, you know, there's a case to be made for for Trevor May. Uh, Jury's Familia certainly has had success as a closer before, but uh, by no means feels like a, a sure thing at this point. So I think you're right that there's there's no obvious other direction to go with that ninth inning. And, and it does seem like 
Diaz will remain that guy. But the other aspect of yesterday's game that was so frustrating, um, and something we, Tim and I, have talked about quite a bit this season, uh, as I'm sure you have as well, uh, is the the hitting with runners in scoring position. The Mets went uh, one for ten. Uh, they got tons of opportunities. You can't you can't really say the offense isn't clicking anymore. They've they've been hitting better than they have at any point this season. Uh, but but yesterday this. A uh, very frustrating habit of the team to to get lots of hits and and somehow and get lots of guys on base and not drive any of them in uh, reared its head once more. Is this so? Um, the point I would make is that the Mets have a two forty on uh, batting average with runners in scoring position and a two forty batting average on the season. Right They're, they are uh, they have not played as a good offense. Uh, in any situation, and so it makes sense that they wouldn't play as a great offense with runners in scoring position. However, most teams do tick up in that situation, and the Mets have not. Um, is this like some sort of bonkers institutional issue that I can't figure out, or is it just a manner of this team has not hit well, and so they have not hit well with runners in scoring position? Yeah, I think I think they press in those situations, Ted. I, I think they have pressed all season. I think they have pressed really for two seasons straight in those situations. And you know, normally, I would get, under different circumstances, I would give you kind of the same boring sabermetric answer that I gave you to the closer question: non-save versus save situations, which is that oh, it's a smaller sample size, you can chalk it up to luck, blah blah blah. I don't think that's the case here. I think you've got a situation of guys who are coming into these runners in scoring position spots, these RBI spots. It's even more exacerbated with the bases loaded. This is the same problem they had last year as well. And I do think there's a clenching. There's a tightening up. There is a thinking back in the mind of, wow, we haven't, um, you know, we haven't done this. We really need this. I want to be the guy to get the big hit here. We got to find a way to break through. And as anyone who's ever played baseball at any level can tell you, the minute you start thinking like that in the box is the minute that you start squeezing that bat a little tighter and all these unconscious things start going through your mind. And it just, it doesn't tend to work out that well. And I do think that's what's been happening with the Mets. And I also think, frankly, at this point, you know, it's been happening for so long that it's hard to see them coming out of it. They have done a little better offensively as a whole. But again, this isn't a new problem. Uh, this is something that has affected them all year. And, you know, the fact that they haven't been able to bring themselves out of it, it it's, it's not physical. These guys are super talented. Coming into the year, I thought they were going to be one of the best offenses in the National League. You look on paper, it's somewhat shocking that they haven't been. So, and that's why I really liked the deadline edition of Javi Baez, for example. Mm -hmm. I think he is a different type of guy. He seems like a, just maybe a a cooler customer in general when it comes to those spots. And we've seen it already. He, he, you know, he's had some big home runs. He's had some big hits. He's done some things almost, uh, you know, I evoked the name Ioannis Cespedes in one of my stories this weekend and, and not to compare Javi Baez to Ioannis Cespedes. They're very different players, but he has that it factor in that he comes into this lineup of guys who are all kind of struggling in the same ways. And he's very different from the rest of them. And all of a sudden he has an immediate impact because whatever voodoo is happening, you know, one through seven in the lineup, well, it's not affecting Javi Baez, just as it wasn't affecting Ioannis Cespedes in 2015. So that's been good, but it hasn't quite been enough to counteract the fact that you still 
need production if you're going to win from Conforto, from McNeil, from Dom Smith, from all, all of these guys up and down the lineup who we thought were going to be very, very good and have been somewhere between you know mediocre or in some cases worse. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Yeah, I want to get to back to Baez. I agree with you. I, I loved the addition, and I do. It is easy, I think, to draw parallels to Cespedes, not just for being a, a trade deadline acquisition, but also uh, a trade deadline acquisition who, who doesn't necessarily fit what we associate the Mets with um, normally going for, and a guy who has that sort of like electric vibe that they might bring to to a lineup and and add a spark uh but uh to to your point about runners in scoring position it's it's funny to think about like you can you can identify like mcneil's had some big hits and conforto's had some big hits and they are like the uh and nimmo's had big hits and alonzo's had big hits but when you think about the big time like clutch hits of this season for the mets it feels like it's kevin pilar and it's jose peraza and those guys aren't like by any means and jonathan vr too and, and vr's had a just a nice season uh, through and through but they're not guys you think about as part of this this core mets team uh and in peraza and pilar's case they're not even guys you think about as particularly good hitters so um i think you you have a case that there is like a uh something looming on top of of the Mets clubhouse that makes them press a little bit in those situations, especially the guys who have been around for a couple of years. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes I don't believe in that. And then sometimes I watch it and I think, oh, no, they're absolutely uh, dread the dreaded term in baseball trying to do too much. Um, <laughs> Jerry Seinfeld uh, went. Uh, came out on behalf of, of Javi Baez saying that uh, he also doesn't think uh, fans should should boo their home team. I'm sure you've been around New York long enough at this point to know that it is an inevitability. But uh, Baez, it seemed for like oh, saying the quiet part louder or how whatever you want to uh, associate with his like weirdly nonchalant announcement that he and his teammates were were booing the fans um at when it came out it sounded like you know from reading the the uh the trying to, to get a litmus test for Mets fans wherever you could whether it's WFN or Twitter or anywhere Mets fans were talking he was despised for a minute there and uh because they've played better since that moment uh, and because Bias himself has played so well, it now seems like a lot of people are, are coming around to what he can offer a team. And even um, sort of revisionist history looking at, at those comments, which um, I never minded. I, I 
think it's cool when a when a player is honest like that. But uh, it, do you think that there do you think that he, there is a chance he he comes back next year? Do you, because I, I would have said last week no chance, but now maybe. If the answer is no, Ted, it's not going to be because of comments you made about booing. And it's with all of these guys, not just Javi Baez, but you go on down the line. Uh, it's about are you producing? That's really at its core, at its bottom line, all the fans care about. When mm-hmm. Matt Harvey was here, he was, you know, going to clubs, doing the nightlife thing, all this different stuff. And fans ate that up when he was doing well, when he was pitching at a Cy Young caliber level. And then as soon as he stopped pitching at a Cy Young caliber level and he was pitching poorly, he was still doing the same things off the field. But all of a sudden, those were problems. And those were reasons for people to dislike him and ultimately to boo him and to, uh, you know, not drive him out of town. But you know, they, they weren't sorry to see him go when he was ultimately traded. Uh, it's the same thing with Javi Baez. Not that it's off-field stuff with him, but... If he's doing well, which, by the way, he is, he's, he's been a really nice addition on the field for the Mets, both offensively, defensively, base running. He's done some really interesting and helpful things for the Mets. As long as he's doing that, he, he can do whatever he wants, and he's going to be just fine in the court of public opinion. A story like that was a fun, interesting story. It's already kind of in the past. You'll see a couple guys at the stadium, and they'll put their thumbs down when they see him and Lindor and go, boo, boo. But you're talking about the extreme minority of fans there who, who even still care about this a week later. Uh, it's about the baseball aspect. It's about what can he bring. Uh, I'm skeptical that a Mets team that has already committed $341 million to Francisco Lindor will commit uh, whatever it takes to get Javi Baez. And I actually think his market is super interesting. Uh, he's been a very inconsistent player throughout his career. He does a lot of things really, really well. And he does one thing, which everyone knows is plate discipline really, really poorly. And I actually thought Luis Rojas had some interesting comments the other night uh, after Baez had another big game. And he said something to the effect of, it is a marvel, is the word that he used, that Javi Baez is able to be the type of player that he is with the plate discipline that he has. And it's worse than ever this year. His strikeout rate's up around 35%, which is insane even for him. Um, and yet he's been, you could argue, their most impactful offensive player since he came here on July 30th. So it's a long way of saying I have no idea what this guy's market is going to be this winter. He's certainly not going to get 341 like Francisco Lindor did, but um, you know, can he get a nine figure deal? Can he get something uh, like he thought he would get paid as an elite shortstop? Like Carlos Correa is going to get paid as a shortstop. Is he in that stratosphere? We'll see. Um, I I think if his market comes down, the Mets are going to have to be interested. Um, But I really don't have a good sense sitting here talking to you today, Ted, uh, of what that market's going to be. Well, yeah, I I wouldn't just to to make the point about his his aggressiveness. It is it is certainly out of character with with what the Mets have been seeking. But and, and it was something I think a lot of people talked about before he joined the Mets. People said, okay, you know, everybody needs to know this is a guy with uh, that people like a term people said was a flawed player, as if there's, uh, you know, as if there's any any other such thing, save like Mike Trout and Shohei Otani. But um, I think, you know, he's also a, a very good player on the whole. Like that's that's un- undoubtedly true, just because he had so much with in in so many phases of the game beyond just his offense, which is. Uh, yes, like low on base percentage, but but he does put up, uh, he does hit home runs and he does hit extra base hits and he does uh, make things happen on the base paths. I also think there's a case to be made, and, and I don't know that this is something that I've seen quantified or attempted to quantify, but 
if you have a bunch of patient hitters, like I wonder if there's an advantage in having one guy who is just like sort of taking advantage of the fact that like Brandon Nimmo is is lulling you to sleep with a very long at bat and where you, you know, you're uh, you're going to need to be careful and, and prepare yourself for this long battle. And then like here comes Javi Baez up next and and, you know, you've been uh, you know, this guy, you know, you're you're in the Nimmo mindset still, and you know this guy's not going to swing outside of the strike zone, and then all of a sudden, Bias takes a big rip and 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 hits a 450-foot home run. Um, it feels like there's, like, diversity of offensive approach might be something with, with some value. Um, and, I mean, I think I mostly just try to come up with excuses for the Mets to have him because I like watching him play so much. If you're as obsessed with basketball as I am, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Hey guys, this is JJ Redick. Twice a week, I'm cooking up something special for basketball junkies on my podcast, The Old Man and the Three. I bring on guests in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, like Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash or Paulo Bencaro on his shooting workouts with Kevin Durant, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron when they were teammates in Miami. But it's not just about the player interviews. Every Monday, I break down the top three things happening around the NBA without the outlandish takes. Often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler, we dive deep into topics like rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? The Old Man of the Three is the only companion podcast you'll need during the playoffs this year. Be sure to listen to The Old Man of the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. We have a question. Uh, this one comes from at Cassidy Rob, Rob Cassidy on Twitter. Uh, Tony, which specific Met fan that you have encountered either at the park or in the wild most deserves to be booed? <laughs> Uh, you're gonna get me in trouble with that question, Ted. Um, it's I'll Michael. say this: the, the 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 type of fan that that frustrates me as someone who covers the team and is the one who thinks that their fandom is, is different than that of a Yankee fan or that of a Red Sox fan. Like we're like we're the best fans. Uh, you know, we have so much passion for our team in ways that you couldn't even understand. If if, if you like the Yankees, you like the Red Sox or the Cubs or the Giants or the Dodgers or whoever. And, you know, traveling around the country, watching these different teams, it, it's, it's just not true. These fans are passionate in all of these cities. 
and the idea that the Mets fan is somehow a different breed uh, um, is a little misguided, I think. Yes, they are, are have been cultured into a little bit of a different breed because of the things that have gone on in this franchise and how you have to kind of, um, you know, wear a hazmat suit to be a Mets fan at times. But that being said, you know, this is a very passionate fan base. I wouldn't say it's different in that way from other fan bases around baseball. So the, the minimizing of other people or this idea that, that this, you know, these people are, are, are different or, or, or better or worse or whatever um, is uh, and, and using that to kind of belittle others, I think is, is the, what, what gets me at times. Um, that being said, the Mets are obviously have an extremely passionate fan base. They do. And um, you know, it, it's, it's fun to see that when, when the team gets good. And I, and frankly, I feel bad for, a lot of these fans, because we've said it so many times, we saw it in 2015 when the Mets were good and the stadium was full and people were making that house rock every single night. And it's just been so few and so far between to be able to see that. And I don't blame fans one bit uh, for not coming out in droves when the team is bad. So it, it's, uh, it is a shame. This fan base has been referred to as a sleeping giant many a time, and it's very, very true. Um, it's too bad that you don't see that more often at City Field. Yeah, you know, and Russin and I talked about it last week. I think that uh, a lot of what is associated with, like, oh, this is what Mets fans do, um, like, it might might be as much like local custom as as it is a reflection of some sort of attitude. Like, you know, he Rustin pointed out, like. Fans in Kansas City still boo their own players. They have like a little bit of a longer leash before they doing it. But I have to imagine drivers in Kansas City have a, a little bit longer leash before they they give the middle finger. So, you know, I think that it's just this is a demonstrative place. And, and the people who live here are going to be demonstrative uh, when when their baseball team performs poorly. I do have a couple of specific fans I could shout out. One, and I, I just went through this on Twitter last week, but uh, I went to a, a Mets game against the Cubs in 1998. At the very beginning of the season, I had great seats. I my uncle had box seats for his, through his work. Uh, we were we were in like the eighth row, just sort of towards the the visitors dugout from home plate, uh, and a few rows in front of us, just behind the on deck circle, was the most obnoxious fan I've ever heard in my entire life. Uh, and he, you know, he's just going after every single guy in the Cubs, uh, especially hard on Mickey Morandini. Um, he kept singing the Mickey Mouse Club theme to him, except, you know, see you later. Why? Because you're lousy. Um, and then, and he was really, really, really went after a then unspectacular power hitting outfielder on the Chicago Cubs named Sammy Sosa, who he deemed Sammy Soso. And would hit a home run later that game. And it was only the third home run of the 1998 season for Sammy Sosa. And I will be convinced for the rest of my life that this guy yelling Sammy Sosa for every time Sosa got up that day is what made Sammy Sosa a guy who could hit 66 home runs in the season. So I would boo that man. Um, a, a second fan I would bring up and this more... Uh, uh, a little bit feel better about this guy uh, at a game when Jeff Kent was on the Mets and fans hated him. Uh, Kent, everything Kent did got him booed. And it was, was like, I think 94, 95 Kent made just this spectacular play at third base. And this, the stadium went dead quiet. And one guy just stood up and yelled, 
you still suck, Kent. And I thought it even at the time, I thought it was hilarious in retrospect. I think maybe that was a little hard on Jeff Kent uh, because I have since met Jeff Kent and found, uh, to my own disappointment, who's a very nice guy. Well, I, I was just going to add in, um, you know, one of the few games that I've actually attended as a fan in my adult life uh, was in 2014. It was at Wrigley Field and I was there for a bachelor party. And, uh, you know, I was with a bunch of, of friends and, and, you know, it had been a morning, as you might expect under those circumstances. And, we got to Wrigley Field uh, early for batting practice, and they were playing the Milwaukee Brewers, the Cubs were. And uh, during batting practice, one of my friends is goes right up to the first row, and he was feeling pretty good about life at that point. And he saw Chris Davis, Chris, uh, K-H-R-I-S, Davis, mm-hmm. playing for the Brewers at that time. And he just starts screaming at him. And he starts going, Chris Davis, 53 home runs last year. Like, oh, great no. season, man. And, and – let me preface this. He knew exactly who this oh. Chris Davis was. He knew that this was not uh, Baltimore Orioles Chris Davis, but he was just trying to get a rise out of him. So he kept doing And this went on for probably 10 minutes or so. And then finally, Chris Davis turns around and looks up and goes, hey, man, I'm not that guy. <laughs> and everyone started cracking up laughing. And, but the moral of the story is that Chris Davis went on obviously, to hit close to 50 home runs of his own in the future. So I think you might be onto something, Ted, and that this heckling of players can cause them to reach a new level in their careers. Well, so maybe we should be cheering those guys, because Sammy Sosa changed baseball history, and Chris Davis had some some really nice years for the, for the A's. So maybe it's the motivation that, uh, that players need. Anthony Tacoma, I know you need no motivation and certainly no booing to continue doing a fine job on the Mets beat at MLB.com. Thank you so much for joining today. I appreciate that, Ted. And and who knows, maybe at some point this year, Tim Britton will come back. We will see. We will see. The Mets have a a lot of Metsing to do before that happens, I'm sure. (laughs) They, 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 They often do. Adios.